everybody, and welcome to the Atlantic Silk Podcast. I am here with Paul Aronson. He is the head of the Unbudsman Office for the Division of Developmental Disabilities here in New Jersey. And we're just going to talk about what the Unbudsman's Office does, what DDD services are, for those of you who don't know, and for this great report that Paul did this year where he talked about all the issues that people with disabilities are facing during the pandemic that we'll link to in our podcast intro that you can get and see it on as a resource. Of course, now my phone is ringing everybody if you hear that in the background, but I took care of that. But let's get started. So, Paul, great to have you. Great to be here, Donald. Thanks so much. Yeah, so let's start. What is DDD? Because I get sometimes I get phone calls and I think sometimes since you and I are in this world all the time, we assume everybody knows this stuff, but I get phone calls and a lot of people don't even know what DDD is or what it does. So can you explain it to the audience? Or DDD, which stands for the New Jersey Division of Developmental Disabilities, is the division within New Jersey state government. It happens to be housed in the Department of Human Services, but it's the division that really is sort of provides the crux of services and supports for folks with developmental disabilities age 21 and older. Yeah, so what does DDD consider a developmental disability? Because I think that's important for people to know too. Developmental disability is a disability that had its onset uh, prior to age of 22 for an individual, and that is generally life lifelong, lifespan disability. Uh, oftentimes people are born with them or could have its onset you know, when a, when a person is a child. And so that that is sort of technically what what a developmental disability is considered. And Paul, does it have to be a cognitive disability, or could it be a visible disability? It, I it doesn't. Question do. Yeah, it it can be cognitive. It can be visible. You know, it can. You know, so we're talking generally speaking. We're talking about autism. We're talking about cerebral palsy, Down syndrome. Could be spina bifida. There's a whole range of disabilities again that just has has their onset early on and that's lifelong. Okay, but it has to be before the age of 22. Right. And also, don't you have to be on Medicaid first? Is that correct? So now DDD provides all of its services and supports, you know, using Medicaid. And so somebody needs to be eligible for Medicaid to get any of their services and supports. Yeah, I always think that's an important point for people to remember. And what services and supports do you get? Let's say if you get approved, what do you receive? What are your what, what happens? It, it all depends. I mean, so the, the intake process, so to get to become eligible for DDD, you have to not only be, you have to be Medicaid eligible, but also you have to have a developmental disability and have significant needs in like three of diff, seven different areas of sort of living. You know, it could be communication, could be self-care, you know, there's, and once you are deemed eligible, what you do is you take what they call the New Jersey Comprehensive Assessment Tool, otherwise known as NJCAT. And that's basically a questionnaire that helps DDD determine the level of need that an individual has, what level of supports they need. And based on that, you get a tier level, A through E. A being somebody who doesn't need that many supports, E being somebody who needs more significant supports. And you get a budget based on that. And then you develop what they call an ISP, an Individualized Service Plan, and that's where you decide what services and supports through DDD that you need. It could be going to a day program, could be em- employment supports, it could be, you know, belonging to your local gym, it could be taking certain classes, you might need some transportation assistance. It all depends on the individual. They try to individualize it to the extent possible. 
Awesome. That's a, that's a good summation. You are the head of the ombudsman's office, and I know it's relatively new, and that word is kind of funny to say. <laughs> but what is the ombudsman's office? What, what do you guys do? What's your mission? Sure. So our office was created by the New Jersey legislature in December of 2017. It was signed into law by Governor Christie in January 2018. And I, as the ombudsman, am appointed, I was appointed by Governor Murphy. And it's an office that was born out of the recognition that while there are a lot of services and supports in New Jersey for children as well as adults, there's also a lot of folks that fall through the gaps. Uh, and, you know, in, in part, and this goes back to your first question about DDB and not, not people not knowing it, it's a very complex system. And so our job is really to work with individuals of all ages and their families and just to help make sure they get the services and supports they need whether they're children, whether adults, whether it's from the state, whether it's the county, whether it's from an advocacy organization, we just try to connect people with the resources that they need and deserve. And I will say, just from my own personal experience, I mean, I have heard great things about your office. You guys are very responsive. And I just got to give you a lot of credit because I remember when I first started, you know, when you first started coming around to the state independent living council meeting, I mean, it was just, it was really just you. It was like one person in the office. And now it's grown. You're up to three people now, right? Yeah, we're, we're three people covering the state, right? And you guys, are, I, I'm always amazed. You you guys are always very responsive. And I just, I give you guys a lot of credit because you guys have been great advocates and great at nav- helping people navigate the system. Because you're right. There's a lot of, and you talk about this in your report. There's a lot of assumptions built into the system that are sometimes negatively affect people with disabilities. So talk about that other part of your mission. I know you a report every year for the governor, right, about the different issues facing people with disabilities. Yeah, so part of the mandate of the office is to produce this annual report. It goes to the governor, it goes to the legislature, it goes to the commissioners of human services, as well as the commissioner of Department of Children and Families. And in the law that created the office, it sort of just was very vague in terms of what should be in the report. It said a summary of the previous year's activities, as well as some recommendations. And so what what we did, what I did early on was to see it as an opportunity, if you will, to sort of tell the story, the story that, that you know, the, about the challenges faced by individuals and families throughout New Jersey. And so what we've tried to do is, you know, speak to the challenges, systemic challenges that people face, issue specific challenges people face, provide some recommendations, you know, and we try to do, you know, one of the things I I note in all my reports is, you know, people come to our office when there's a problem or when they're kind of lost navigating the system, they don't know where to turn. And that's as it should be. But because of that, our focus on a day-to-day basis, as well as our annual report is more on what's missing or what's not working. So that's not to suggest the system, you know, is all flawed. It's not by any means. It's a lot of good things in our system primarily the people working in it, but there definitely are gaps. And so we try to use the report really to sort of shine a bright light on some of the deficiencies and some of the things that need to be fixed. I totally agree with all that, Paul. I mean, I always say people who do what you and I do, like we don't hear this. We don't hear about the success stories. People don't usually call us and say, everything's working out. I just wanted to let you know. Um, Exactly right. (laughs) It's usually the people who are left behind or not being served. So I, you know, I don't want to make it seem like everything in New Jersey is wrong. In fact, there are a lot of good things about the disability service in New Jersey that if you look at other states, there's a lot of things New Jersey does right. And there are a lot of great people in the system as well. Like you said, and I think it is important to highlight that. 
But what are some of the systemic challenges that you see? If you can give us kind of a brief, you know, bullet points of what you saw in the report that you wanted to bring to the governor's attention. Sure. You know, one of the systemic challenges that I've I've put in all four of our reports so far, and I always start off with it, is the complexity of the system. To me, you know, it's it's one of the biggest barriers people have to getting the services and supports they need and deserve. It's just very confusing and can be very overwhelming. A, because they're, you know, it's ever-changing. And but B, you know, there are like more offices and more departments and more acronyms and more sets of criteria and more forms that fill out. And you don't always get the same answer depending on who you talk to. And so that system complexity to me is one of the biggest barriers we have. And so any, you know, I always when I talk to folks in, in our report, you know, anything we can do is simplify little things, big things, anything we can do to make it more accessible, more user-friendly, I think would benefit everybody, people working the system, as well as people who rely on it. Another major issue, you know, and I speak about in the reports is, you know, the seeming inflexibility of the system. I know we we strive to be person-centered, but more often than not, it seems like we have relatively rigid rules and, you know, guidelines and programs and policies and yes or no. And while that makes sense on one level, in the field of human services in general, and, you know, with folks with disabilities in general, it it has to be person-centered because what works and is needed by one individual is not the same as what works and is needed by the next individual. Yeah, I think all that is true. The two points, the complexity, you know, I always say that I don't, I don't know about you, but I have trouble keeping up with everything. I have the constant, and we do this every day, constantly. Yeah. So I can't even imagine if I I didn't do this every day, and I had you know two kids and a whole lot more going on. So I, I think it's important that people in these services, when they propose these solutions, they understand that it's not as easy as it sounds, and that a lot of people who are coming to us, at least me especially, or coming to you, have tried a lot of the basic stuff. So you got to always keep that in mind too. That if there was an easy answer, chances are they would have found it before they got to you. Not always. Sometimes you know right. it is a pretty easy answer, but Sometimes, you know, when I always say, when people say, oh, just fill out, like you said in your report, oh, just fill out this form. Well, it's a form they might have filled out two or three times already and they haven't gotten an answer. Oh, do this appeal process. Well, they've been through the appeal process and they don't feel like they're being listened to. Also, what you said about, you know, we say it's it's person-centered until we be a person that doesn't fit into a box <laughs> that's easy. So then it kind of gets frustrating for those people who get left behind. So I think right. what you said about, Flexibility, adding that, you know, people have really different situations and it is great. And like you said, I understand in government, there does need to be some rules. You know, they have limited resources. I understand that. But, you know, we just want to make sure that the system is as humane as possible and doesn't leave people behind. Because if our goal, and I think our goal in New Jersey is to have as many people living with disabilities, living the lives they choose as possible. We got to make sure that we don't, you know, make that hard to do. So I just really want to commend you for that report. Another thing you said that I really took away from the report, you know, even some of these appeal processes, you know, the state doesn't necessarily, even if the judge rules in your favor, the state doesn't have to listen to that recommendation. So can you talk about, you know, kind of that those issues with the system? It really does favor the state in a lot of ways. Yeah. So thanks. Thanks for that. So, yeah. So in the report, one of the sections we talk about is the appeals process, both for children, but primarily for adults, because that's 
more what we deal with. You know, for students, you know, as a, as a family knows, uh, sometimes you can be in a school district that's very accommodating, very understanding, and really works with the family, you know, and the, and the child with special needs. But there are some school districts that are not that way. And more often than not, you know, again, the people that come to our office are those that are, you know, in, in a pitched battle with their school district, which is really unfortunate. And, you know, the process there is they call it due process. You know, you can go to mediation. But still, you know, you're talking about families having to oftentimes lawyer up or either become knowledgeable of the law themselves and try to fight their school district, something nobody really wants to do. Most of these families don't have the financial or emotional bandwidth to sort of to do that. And the adult side and what you were talking about, Donald, is, you know, something that we've learned is right now, if you get a decision uh, from DDD, from, let's say, the state Medicaid office, you know, you have a disagreement with your managed care organization, your MCO, they say, oh, you, you, there's an appeals process. It sounds wonderful, right? Yeah, you can appeal it. But the appeals process is means you have to go to an administrative law court. The state office is defended by a deputy attorney general. So a family or an individual has to go up against deputy attorney general. But at the end of the day, what's what's striking is that the judge's decision in an adult case is not a decision. It's a recommendation. And so it goes back to that state agency and they can just say no. After you've gone through all of that. Right. So when we say there's an appeals process, it's like, is there really? Like, because I think that stuck out to me so much because I went to law school, got my law degree, and, you know, you just learned so much. All right, if the judge rules in my favor, cool, I won. But not not in this case. And so I think that's an error in the system that I think we should look at because it's not legit appeals process. It's not a, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, it's not a, it's not a, um, a real representative system if the, the judge who's supposed to be kind of the empire and the one who just says is objective, if their decision can just be re- disregarded. Because, of course, the state is more likely to think they're doing everything right. Right. <laughs> so an agency that said no to you is not likely to change that answer based on a judge making a recommendation to them. Uh, right. And it's hard. I think it's hard to justify, you know, even though I think it's a lot good when people go through the appeal process, I can totally understand a parent or an adult in DDD saying, why would I do that? Like, I'm going to take time off work. I'm going to pay maybe a lawyer and I'm going to, you know, lose money myself and it's going to get in front of a judge. And even if I win, I could lose. So I I think that is... Yeah, I agree. And the thing is, a lot of families don't know it until they get to the end of the process Mm -hmm. also. Oh, that's a real important point too, Paul. I think at least in this system, if they don't change that, they should make it mandatory that that is known up front. You right. know, before you begin this appeal process, here's what you should know. So you at least, at the very least, you know what you're getting into and you can weigh your options. Absolutely. So, instead of, because <laughs> I'm telling you, I can see a lot of people thinking, all right, we won. And it's like, well, not quite, not, not right. quite. <laughs> That's exactly right, Donald. And so one, and one of the things we suggest in the report is in terms of DDB or Medicaid, you know, for the adult system, that there's, it, it shouldn't be just going from the decision of the agency to court. There should be some intermediate step, some kind of, you know, intensive review where they actually pull the file, meet with the individuals in person, you know, if it's, if you're, you know, depending on this situation, really do their due diligence and really, you know, look to see if there's a way to get to yes. And if it's still at the end of the day is no, then okay, some kind of, you know, administrative law process probably would make sense, but one with that's binding. One with yeah. 
I think that's a, a really strong recommendation too, kind of having a middle step. Because once you go from the decision right to court, it automatically becomes adversarial. You know, it's automatically, you know, one person on one side and one person on the other. And if there was an intermediate step where it's like, all right, can we come to some reasonable solution here? I think that would be helpful and make the system feel a little more humane. Instead of right away, you get denied, then appeal, then you're doing the whole court system type thing. So I right. think that kind of hurts the system in a way. What were some challenges you saw as a result of any lingering effects as we're getting out of going back into this pandemic type of thing? Like, How has the pandemic affected everything? Well, as you know, I mean, our, our community, the disability community was disproportionately impacted by COVID. And it really, I really feel like the, the pandemic really exposed the fault lines, if you will, of, in our system of care. You know, anything that was a problem, you know, or a challenge beforehand, whether it was staffing, whether it's transportation, whether it's employment, whether it's civil rights, you know, protection of civil rights seemed to be impacted in a very negative way during COVID. So my hope is, you know, coming out of COVID, like the rest of our society, we, you know, we really engage in some meaningful lessons learned exercises, you know, what worked, what didn't work, what do we need to improve on? You know, and one of the things we talk about in the, in the report at the end, because uh, I, I do Last year, we, we took a deeper dive into stage response and COVID, which made sense. This year, I didn't want to do that again because we sort of need to just move forward and, you know, just talk about things that are working and not working. But one of the things I, I really hope we sort of see as an opportunity coming out of the pandemic is, you know, the use of technology, you know, for, for virtual meetings and programming, uh, not as a substitute for in-person. But, you know, to, to, you know, we all know, you know, there are some people that can't make it to all meetings or they can't make it to all programs and stuff. And so if we can find some hybrid future that, in, that engages people in a meaningful way and makes meetings, makes, you know, programs more accessible to folks, I think we should embrace that. Yeah, it goes back to what really what was really, I think, the theme of the report was kind of making the system more humane and more meeting people more where they are. And just having that option, like like you said, we're not saying never do it in person. Some people love in person. You know, I thought I was going to love working from home. It turns out I hate it <laughs> and I, I'd much rather be in an office. But you do want to have that option. So like these hearings and these appeal processes and these conferences, and hopefully what you're saying with your recommendation, the more mediations they do, like that stuff should all be, you should be able to do that virtually. We've learned how to do that, you know? Right. So I think I really hope we don't go back. You know, I've been reading stories in my local paper about some city councils going completely in person. I think that's a mistake. I hope we don't look at this COVID stuff and the lessons we've learned as a temporary thing, because it shouldn't be temporary. It should be of course, we should have an in-person option too, but there are a lot of people who just having that virtual option just sends a message that they're included and they're being thought of. So I think that's a real simple recommendation that can be thrown in as well. So what what do you, what do you want the big takeaways to be from this report? Like what if people only, you know, as soon as you say read a report, people are like, read a report, you know, their eyes plays over but it's only 30 pages guys it's not gonna hurt you and it works really well with a screen reader but <laughs> i gotta give you credit for that too but if you could like boil it down to like one or two points that you want somebody to take away what would it be 
It's, you know, it's, it's a recommendation, you know, so it goes to the two recommendations at the end of the report. So all, all throughout the report, you know, we, we, we offer this recommendation, that recommendation, little suggestions, ideas, and what have you. But at the end of the report, we have two recommendations. And it's basically the same two recommendations we, we talk about all the time and have been in our other reports. And that is the system, you know, there are so many issues we have and so many challenges and they change. And, you know, just the, the nature of, you know, providing support and services for people with disabilities is going to be ever changing and ever challenging. But the way we can best fix the system on big issues and small issues is to have more connection, more with people who have personal lived experience with disability, either their own disability or family members, disability, people that understand it. Uh, and we need to have them sitting at the table more often. That's sort of like the way the SILs are sort of set up. You know what I mean? The Centers for Independent Living. Yes. I mean, it's, you, you just come to better policies. You know, there's, there's no way for somebody who has no lived experience with disability to understand what what it, what you know what this means or what that means and in and disabilities themselves are very diverse and so we it's not just having one person with disability it's having more people with disabilities and family members at the table helping to make decisions you know one of the one of the examples i used in previous annual reports speaking about this in person you know the importance of diversity in the workplace including people with disabilities sort of in the decision making was the issue of banning plastic bags and banning plastic straws. Now, we know here in New Jersey, we now have the law, we have no more plastic bags. As you probably remember, Donald, early on, you know, when this legislation was making its way through Trenton, it was banning the plastic bags at supermarkets, it was banning plastic straws. I've got to believe that wherever that great idea, that very environmentally conscious idea came up, if there had been somebody, you know, sitting there who had mobility challenges or a family member, you know, who relied on, you know, a plastic straw for hydration and nourishment, that idea would never have made it out of that conference room, right? It would never made it into legislation. And we can't expect people who don't know the importance of a plastic straw and somebody with a physical disability. That's why, you know, they need to make sure that the decision-making includes people who have this kind of lived experience. Again, we in New Jersey, we came out with a much better place. Now the law is, you know, if someone requests it, they have to be provided. And that makes sense. That's, a, that's like a win-win. But that comes about by making sure that, that we're part of the conversation. Oh, I think that that's an awesome point and a great thing to end our podcast on is a lot of these issues can be better resolved. Like there are always going to be issues, but they can be better resolved and more quickly resolved or or not get as far as they do down the line. If we incorporate and use some more people with diverse backgrounds and disabilities in the decision-making process, not just kind of that patronizing thing of like, oh, I got a person with disability, but they... They're not really a part of the decision-making, but a lot of these issues could be resolved. Like you said, that straw thing, that would have been, if a person with a visible disability was on that committee, that would have not gotten as far as down the line as it did when when it was first proposed, because it would have been quite easy to for that person to go, hey, that's not my experience, and is this a trade-off worth making as a society? So I just think that's really important. If people would, people are reading this and they don't have a disability and they're like, oh, I don't know what to do. I would just encourage them that to, to say whatever walk of life they're doing, incorporate with people with disabilities in your job. Ask about, you know, ask about that type of stuff. If you are in a business, kind of, are we looking to hire people with disabilities? If you're running a business yourself, if you're in a nonprofit, sort of if you're in any walk of life, your organization will only be stronger if it incorporates all people and all people with disabilities. So I just think that's a real good thing to leave off on, Paul. And I thank you for taking the time out. I know you're always super busy with your 
three-person office. And I would recommend anybody who's having an issue with DDD, reach out to Paul and his office. They're super helpful. You know, nobody, like I always say about the sale, I can't guarantee a result, but I can guarantee we're going to try our best. And I know Paul's office does the same thing. And I know, Paul, even though you you guys are focused on the DDD population, you guys help all people with disabilities the best you can. So you don't, like, ask for, you know, their DDD proof when they answer the phone. So, you know, I just want to commend you guys for that as well. So. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Really, yeah, I really appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, we appreciate this conversation. And like you said, I encourage anybody who's got any issue, uh, just contact our office whenever you can. Yep, and the number will be in the uh, in the description. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thanks, Donald. Take care. You're, you're welcome. Bye. Bye bye.